Well, let's turn again to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll just consider two verses this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. As we're making our way through Peter's letter, uh, like Paul in, in Philippians, we're only about halfway through, but he throws out this word. Uh, that every person who's ever listened to a Baptist preacher knows is a lie, right? Finally, in conclusion, as we close today, right, you know that that's not true. And he's not saying that the letter's almost at its end. It's simply a, a note of transition in the letter. And he's still making this point that he began back in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, as he's calling us to live holy lives that are pleasing to God, separate from that of the world. He's calling us to live honorably, as he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that is, among unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. There is a way that God intends for us to live that would cause those who would speak evil against us, and certainly there are those who speak evil against the church, right? We, we're in agreement there. That those who speak evil against the church, and against maybe even you as an individual Christian, would be able to see your life, the conduct of your life, the way you treat the people around you, the way that you submit to authority, the way you treat other Christians... And say there is something different about that person. And perhaps they would even be led to faith in Christ. As Peter says, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And that's the same thing that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so Peter's been teaching us along those lines, and he's been giving us very specific contexts in which we are to live this kind of life. We talked about submitting to those in authority who are, of, who are over us, especially those in government. He's instructed servants to be submissive to their masters. He's instructed Christians to submit to the Lord even in suffering. And then the last couple of Sundays that we looked at First Peter, we saw his instructions to wives and to husbands, that wives should be submissive to their own husbands. And in this context, they were unbelieving husbands. These were women who had become Christians. And as Christians now living with an unbeliever, how do, how do you conduct yourself? And Peter says, be a, a submissive wife. Be a good, God-honoring wife, so that, for the same purpose, this unbelieving husband might come to the knowledge of the truth by your testimony. And then to husbands, he says, Husbands, likewise, you dwell with your wives in an understanding way. 
You give honor to your wife. You exalt your wife. You consider her as an heir together of the grace of life. She's not just your partner in life. She is a fellow heir of the riches of Christ. You're going to enjoy God with her for all of eternity. So treat her that way now. That your prayers may not be hindered. And everybody ought to have slammed on the brakes right then and said, Hold on, what? None of us want our prayers hindered. So husbands, let me remind you, love your wives well. It is a reflection of your relationship with God. But now, as Peter continues on in this letter, and he gives us this finally, it's a a transition point. He's not so much giving us specific uh, areas uh, to, to live now. He's going to start painting with a broader brush. Because especially in this context and the way our world is going in terms of of persecution and oppression for the church, these things are hard to do. These things are hard to do when everything's going great. It's hard to submit to the government. It's hard to submit to those who are in authority over you when things are going well. How much more being a Christian in persecution? It's hard to be a servant to submit to a master, especially when you're suffering It's hard to submit to God in suffering, but especially when it's unjust. It's hard enough to live as husbands and wives in a God-honoring way when you've got money in the bank and, and everything's going well for you. How much more when persecution comes? But if it's hard in context of government, if it's hard in the context of servants and masters, and it's hard in the context of marriage, surely there's a place on earth where it's easy. Surely we don't have these kinds of problems in the church. Surely church life is never difficult. Okay, you're giving me the looks I hoped for, right? You know it's not that way. You know that even in the church, even among other believers, things can sometimes be difficult. You live long enough and you spend enough time in any church, you're going to see conflict. You're going to see problems. And it's really not that hard to find. Just open your eyes and look around. Somebody, somewhere, all the time is going through conflict in a church. So he's still addressing holy conduct, but he's transitioning from specific people and specific context to general attitudes in the church. This, what Peter gives us in these two verses, is what, a health, what healthy church life looks like. This is conduct that is holy and honorable and pleasing to God in the church. I think he gives us six things here. The first thing he says this is to be of one mind. For you note takers, we'll just call it unity. Unity. Be of one mind. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for, for his church. You remember when we studied John 17, Jesus prayed and he said, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his disciples. I'm not just praying for these 11 guys with me. But also, he says, for those who will believe in me through their word. Any of you believe in the gospel through the word of the apostles? All of you who believe have believed through the word of the apostles. Jesus, on that night before he was betrayed, prayed for you. And here's what he prayed for. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Before Jesus was crucified, knowing all that was going to happen, and knowing that we would be here these 2,000 years later, the thing he prayed for is that we would be one. 
That we would have unity, just as He and the Father have unity. There is no contradiction in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit, all co-equal members of the Trinity. Distinct in their purpose and in their roles and in their function, but one as one God. So we as a church, distinct in our roles, distinct in function, various in our gifts, we are to be of one mind is the church. And there's purpose in our unity. He says that the world would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You know one thing that might just might hinder an unbeliever from hearing the gospel? Seeing the church in disunity. Why would they want to be a part of a church that bickers and fights and hates one another? Treats one another so poorly. But that's not the only purpose. Another purpose is that our unity and in our unity we would glorify God. Paul said this in Romans 15. He says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the Father, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. God's purpose in our unity is one so that we may be a witness of the gospel to the world. People will see the unity that God produces in us by the Holy Spirit. But also that when we gather even for worship, that when we sing hymns together, we may be singing the same words, but our hearts may not all be in the same place. But He desires that we have unity that we may glorify Him with one mind and one mouth. Now, unity doesn't mean that we agree on everything, does it? Do all of you agree with everything that everyone else in this room has done this week? Absolutely not. Do you agree with everything that everyone in your household has done this week? No, of course you don't. It doesn't mean that that we have to agree on everything. Certainly we all have different experiences that, that have made us who we are. We have varying preferences. But that doesn't mean that we can't each exercise our God-given gifts. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. He goes on to say a few verses down, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it not therefore of the body? Of course it is. The foot's still part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were a hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? You wouldn't have a body if you were just hand. You wouldn't have a body if you were just hair. We're all members of one body serving our purpose, but in unity. None of you have ever gotten up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and not all of your body got up to go with you. You may have felt like you left a leg in bed, but the whole body gets up and goes. None of you got up and came to church this morning and left your arm at home. 
Your body had to work together in unity to get you here. You have different parts doing different jobs, but you came here as a whole. So we, as the body of Christ, we have various functions. We have different giftings. We have different jobs that God has given us to do just as He pleased. That was His purpose. But we must function in unity as a whole. This unity means that in all things, we have a singular focus on whom we are serving, on His glory, on accomplishing the purposes that He has for us. If you start using the gifts that God has given you to build your own little kingdom and make a name for yourself, you are not honoring God and you are not serving the body of Christ. You use your gifts, but we all use our various gifts with one focus, and that is on the Lord who saved us, the one we are following and whom we serve. Paul told the Ephesians, we should no longer uh, be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head. Now think about that. Everybody's got a head if it's going to work. And Paul says that we who are of the body should grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We must grow up corporately into our head, which is Christ. The head leads the way. The head makes the decisions. The body performs its functions as it is directed by the head. And our head is Christ. Now, how do we become a church of people who have one mind? Is that even possible? Is it possible for however many, 70 or so people who are here this morning to all have a singular focus in what we need to accomplish? Is it possible for all of us to be of one mind in what we need to do in the priorities and the goals of this church? That feels impossible, doesn't it? We don't agree about that much on anything else. How do we do it? And the answer, quite simply, is this. By having the mind of Christ. How do we conform our minds to the mind of Christ? Our minds are conformed to Christ's as we spend time in His Word and as we walk in the Spirit. You spend time in the Word of God, you walk in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, and your mind will be conformed to that of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, don't you want that kind of unity for our church? Don't you, as an individual member, want to be of the same mind as everyone else here? You don't want to be an outlier. You don't want to be some rogue, lone wolf Christian. Those don't work out well. You need the church. Wouldn't you love for that to be the reality in our congregation? That we all have the same purpose, the same goal, of the same mind, even if we have different jobs. Of course we want that. What in the world, what in the world could God do if the pastor and the deacons and the teachers and the music people and everybody else in the pews had the same mind about the direction of the church? 
What would God do? It's possible. It takes each one of us personally, individually, walking with the Lord, spending time in His Word, being conformed to His image. I can't do that for you. You can't do it for me. So let me ask you this, how are you doing in that? How's your walk with the Lord? How's your time in His Word? How's your prayer life? Because if we as a unit, we as a congregation want to be of the same mind, we have to be individually conforming our own minds to the mind of Christ. Peter says, be of one mind. If we are of one mind, the other things he mentions here come more naturally. The next thing he says is having compassion for one another. Just in one word, let me say sympathy. Sympathy. This isn't the kind of sympathy or the kind of compassion where you look at somebody and you see the stuff they're going through and you say, oh, I really feel sorry for that person. I really feel sorry for you and all that you're going through. That's not what Peter's getting at here. He's talking about literally a, a common passion. It's that we feel the same things that others feel. Romans 12.15, Paul said, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And that really can only happen if you're feeling the same things that the others are feeling. He told the Corinthians, if if one member suffers, you're talking about the, the members of your body, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Just stub your little toe in the night. Your whole body's on the ground. It's not just your toe that's in pain. The whole body's going to suffer. Bite your tongue when you eat. The whole body gives attention to that pain. But if, another mem- if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And you're, this will happen if we are of one mind. If we are in... Unity, we will weep over the same things. We will rejoice over the same things. Whenever one Christian is going through suffering and trials and you see what they're going through and you are of one mind and of one body and members of the same church, you see that and you feel with them. And you can weep with them. And in the same way, whenever the church rejoices over some glad thing that God has done, you can rejoice along with the church. Coming back again to our worship, when we sing good things about God, when we rejoice in God, our hearts should resonate with one another and give glory to Him in unity because we feel the same things. That's what he means by having compassion. It's sympathy. It's feeling the same things for one another. But then he says love as brothers. So let's just say love. This is that same word that we've talked about before that comes out in our town or our city, Philadelphia. City of brotherly love. Paul used the word similarly in Romans 12. He says, be kindly affectionate to one to another. Kindly affectionate. Anybody ever said that this week? You looked at somebody and said, I feel kindly affectionate towards you. 
We should try that. He means, it literally means you're devoted to that person. This is a, a family devotion. Love as brothers. Now some of you are thinking about your relationship with your brother right now and saying, really, the church does not want that. It doesn't mean you get along with, with everything. It doesn't mean you agree on everything. But that family devotion, that loyalty to one another is what Peter's calling for in the church. You know, I can pick on my sister all day long. She's 10 years younger than me. It's easy. I mean, she, she just gives into it every time and gives me a big reaction. Okay, I can pick on her anytime I want. But you can't. That's my job. You don't dare. That's what Peter's calling for in the church. It's a loyalty. It's a love. It's a devotion to one another. And I can say, thankfully, from what I've seen in this church over the last few years, you all are, uh, if one thing is clear, you are devoted to one another. You love one another. And I just want to say praise God for that. Thank God for that. The next thing on the list here, we'll call it kindness, though I think it goes deeper than just that one word can share. He says, be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Now this is similar to sympathy. It's similar to compassion. But it's distinct from compassion. It's distinct from sympathy in that it leads to action. It leads to action. You see, you hear people you know, regularly talk about how much damage the church has done and how much damage Christians have done in the world. And especially, you know, militant atheists especially, the world would be better off if there were no Christians. But let's just be honest for a minute. If it weren't for Christians, the slave trade wouldn't have ended. If it weren't for Christians, we wouldn't have orphanages. If it weren't for Christians, we wouldn't have hospitals. If it weren't for Christians, we'd be missing out on a lot of really good things in the world. Okay? Christians, historically, the, the way Christians are to conduct themselves is to be tender-hearted. It's a kindness that leads us to action. You don't just see a problem. You don't just realize that it's bad. You don't just weep over it. But then you take up arms and do something about it. That's what Peter's calling for in this tenderheartedness, this kindness. And we don't just do that on a, on a scale that's visible to the world, but even in our own church and to one another. We should have this kind of kindness. The, the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, Jesus tells that story. And he talks about how the, the priest and the Levite saw the man lying in the road. He was going to die. And they saw him, but they passed to the other side and, and, and kept on walking. But the Samaritan came along and he saw the man. And Luke tells us that Jesus said he had compassion on him. But he didn't just feel for the man. He didn't just have a compassion that says, Man, that's a sad sight. I am so sorry for that man. And then keep walking. He had a compassion that led him to action. He took the man up on his own animal, took him to a hotel, took care of him, left some money behind when he left so that the man could continue to recover. It was a compassion. It was a kindness that led him to take action. In Luke 15, Jesus tells about the prodigal son. He finds himself in the pig pen. He wants to go home. He says, I've got this speech ready for my dad. I'm going to try to see if he'll hire me as a servant. And when he's coming home, the, the scriptures say that the father saw the son coming a great way off and that he had compassion. But he didn't just stand there on his doorstep and weep and say, there's my son. I'm 
I'm so sorry that he left. I'm so glad he's back. No, it was a compassion that led him to action. He stepped off the front porch. He gathered up his clothes and he took off running. He ran to his son. He put the ring on his finger, the shoes on his feet, killed the fatted calf, gave him the robe and brought him back into fellowship with the family. It was a compassion, a tenderheartedness, a kindness that led to action. And that's the attitude that has to be present in a healthy church. It's not just a tenderheartedness, a kindness that we see problems and we weep over it and we complain about it and we can pray about it. And yes, we ought to do those things. We must pray, but we must take action. When we see a need, especially in our own church, we must step up and take care of that need. When we see a need in the community, we must weep for our community. We must pray for our community. We must feel for them, but we must take action. That's the kindness that Peter's calling us to. Then he says in the end of verse 8, he says, Be courteous. And some of your translations will say, Be humble. And that's really the thrust of the word. So let's say humility. And quite simply, without humility, none of these other things are possible. You won't be marked by unity or sympathy or love or kindness if you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. If who you are and what people think of you and and what you think about things uh, is the most important to you, you're not going to be marked by these other characteristics. You're not going to love well. You're not going to have sympathy. You're not going to take that kind of action that helps people. The last thing he mentions here, we'll just say blessing. But he gives a couple of um, things before that. He says in verse 9, not returning... Evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When he says evil and reviling, basically he's talking about bad deeds and bad words. People who do evil and people who insult you. Doing and speaking evil. Evil and reviling equals harmful deeds and hurtful hurtful words. And the beginning of the command is simply this. Don't return an evil deed for an evil deed. When someone insults you, don't return with another, maybe better, insult. These are our natural responses, aren't they? If we get hurt, we want to cause harm in return. When we're insulted, we want to think of something witty to say to insult them right back. And you, don't, you never think of it in the moment. It's never as good on a whim. You think of it in the middle of the night, like three nights later. Man, I wish I'd have said that. That's just the grace of God holding your tongue. Don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But the instructions that he, actually, that he gives us goes beyond just resisting retribution. Because if your neighbor gets mad at you for letting your dog out, and, you know, and he gets and tears up his flower bed or something, and he comes out and he cusses you out, You can resist the urge to return evil for evil, insult for insult. And you can walk in your house and shut your door and say, I'm so sick of that man. But you haven't returned evil for evil. You haven't returned insult for insult. You shut the door, you turn the blinds, you didn't say a word. But that's not what Peter commands. 
That's not the expectation given to us by God. But on the contrary, Peter says, blessing. Blessing. So it's not just gritting your teeth and holding back the insult. It's not just resisting the urge to get the person back for that thing they did to you. But it is actively bringing yourself to the point where you can bless them and do good for them. We must actively bless those who would do evil to us and insult us. How impossible is that? It's the same thing that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Let me read part of it to you. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn him away. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that makes sense, right? Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. We could go on reading, but I think you get the point. Jesus' expectation for us, Peter's command to us, the, the life that the Holy Spirit desires to live through us is that of blessing those who would do us wrong. Let's wrap up by looking at the end of verse 9. He says, Knowing that to this you were called. What does he mean by that? Called to what? Called to experiencing evil and being insulted? Maybe. He said that already back in chapter 2, uh, verse 21. He says, For to this you were called, talking about suffering, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So that, that may be what he means. Uh, does he mean that we were called to be a blessing? That's what he's just commanded us to do, to return blessing for evil. That could be what he means. Personally, I think this calling is what he says in the very last phrase there. He says, that you may inherit a blessing. To this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. That's what you're called to. We've, we've talked so much already in First Peter about the blessings that we have in Christ. He, he uses that word inherit again here. That's an unmerited term, right? You don't earn for yourself an inheritance. That's something that belongs to someone else and they choose to leave it to you. So Christ, not because of anything that we've done, not because of any uh, merit that we have with God, has chosen to bestow on us despite our failures, despite our sin, the blessings that we have in Christ. That's your salvation. That's your calling. You were called to inherit the blessings of God. 
And all the blessings that we're called to live out, all these blessings that we're called to show to other people are the very blessings that we've already received in Christ. Or you think about unity. We've been given fellowship with God. We are one with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. You think about sympathy. Jesus Christ felt what we feel. He became one of us. He came in the flesh. Made himself of no reputation. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way like we are. Yet without sin. Surely he demonstrated love. He devoted himself to us in dying for us. Not while we were good, not while we were righteous, but while we were still sinners, Paul says. Christ died for us. What about kindness that leads to action? Yeah, he came to where we were. He came to where you were as an individual and saved you. He didn't just die on the cross and buy salvation generally and maybe somebody will take it. No, there was a day, there was a time whenever the Holy Spirit came to you where you were, convicted you of sin and of righteousness and judgment, showed you of the wrath to come, and then showed you the grace of God that had come to forgive you. And He saved you. It was kindness that took action for you personally when God saved you. Certainly, He blessed us with humility. He humbled Himself in giving us any thought at all, much less dying for us. Blessing, despite our failures, despite our rebellion, despite our constant straying, He continues to withhold what we deserve, which is punishment, which is wrath and judgment. And bestows blessings upon us. New mercies every morning. So in reality, a healthy church is just a church that blesses other people the same way that God has blessed us. And I'm not just talking about, you know, canned food drives and backpacks for students. I'm talking about these real blessings. Of unity, sympathy, love, kindness, humility, blessing. So what area in your life have you experienced the blessing of God, but you have not in turn bestowed that blessing on someone else? Where are you holding back? Who is it that eats at you? That you just can't bring yourself to show to them what God has shown you. Or maybe you don't have anybody in mind. You're not holding a grudge. But you're just not actively trying to take these blessings out. You just need to share the gospel with somebody this week. You need to find a lost person. They're not hard to find. You just need to find somebody who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus and ask them, hey, has anybody ever told you the gospel of Jesus? I could never do that. Yes, you can. It's easy. Just say those words. Ask God for help and do it.
I want our church to be marked by this kind of health. It can only be brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it'll only happen collectively if each one of us individually conforms ourselves to the image of Christ. Would you stand as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, for the blessings you have bestowed upon us. Lord, thank you for Christ, who humbled himself, who came and lived among us as one of us. And despite our rejection of you, our rejection of Christ, he loved us and laid down his own life for us. And even since you've saved us, Lord, you continue to bestow blessings upon us. You give us fellowship with you. You draw us near to you. You allow us to walk with you. Lord, I pray that we would take these blessings that we have been given. And in turn, and in whatever capacity, whatever gifts you have given us, Lord, that we would serve the church and serve you by bestowing these blessings on one another and on those outside of our church. And Lord, if someone here has not yet been born again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and that they would be saved today. In Jesus' name, amen.